Psalm 35. But I think that we can strip it down to three main themes. First, in verses 1 through 10, there's a request that may the Lord fight for me. May he be the one who fights my battle on my behalf. Now, what we need to understand in context, and, and this is not in your notes, just kind of a, just as an aside. Anytime a Bible writer, particularly a Bible writer like King David, writes that he wants the Lord to be the one to fight his battles for him, that does not mean that David's not also willing to fight. He is a king of an army by the way, like you can't read the Old Testament story and not see David actually fighting. So when David makes the declaration, I want the Lord to fight my battles for me. That's not David's way of kind of patting his hands and going, and I can just sit over here and I don't have to do anything because God's going to handle everything for me. And I actually don't have to participate in whatever it is that's about to go on. No, David was very much willing to get his sword, get his shield Go out to battle. This is what he was willing to do. And so when we read things like this, we cannot get the mindset of 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 just a, a passive observer. That's not what David means when he calls for God to fight his battles for him. However, the opposite can also be true where we rush headlong into battle against our enemies and we leave God far behind. We need to make sure the rightness and the righteousness of this. And so he calls for God. He says, God, I want you to contend with those who contend with me. I want you to fight against those who fight against me. And we're going to find as we go through the rest of the psalm that the context of this is the assumption of righteousness. God, I'm walking with you. I love your name. I love your word. I love your way. I'm following your will. And there are those who are standing in opposition against me, not because they hate me, but because they hate your way. Now, David doesn't come out and explicitly say it as clearly here as he does in other places, but that's how this should be understood. And we'll kind of walk through in a moment how we are to see that. And notice what he says. In this idea of wanting God to fight for him. The declaration from God to us in verse 3. Say to my soul. This is what David wants to hear God saying to him. I am your salvation. In other words, David wants to hear the affirmation from God. Your battle is a righteous battle. And the enemy is not truly standing against you. They're standing against me. And as such, I will fight this fight on your behalf, not because of any greatness in you, but because of the greatness of who I am as your God. I will be your salvation. And so what does David then ask the Lord to do? He asked the Lord to drive his enemies back. Now, That's very lighthearted what I just said. If you read this, this is this is pretty stout language. That David's using against his enemies. Let those be ashamed who seek my life. Let them be turned back and humiliated. Let them be like chaff driven by the wind. Let their way be dark and slippery. Let destruction come on them. Let 
their net, catch them, let them fall into the destruction that they had set for me. And on David goes. He, he, he uses very combative language to describe what he wants God to do to his enemies. But again, notice this isn't personally vindictive. God, they didn't do me right, so I want you to really get them. That's not what he's saying here. Remember, this is in the context of God, they stand against me because they stand against you. My enemies are truly your enemies, God. And I want you to do to your enemies what you have promised all throughout your word that you will do to your enemies. Let their way be dark. Let their way be slippery. Let their destruction come on them. Don't let them get away with it. But be a God of justice against those who live in their wickedness. It's a different kind of prayer. It isn't a self-important, self-protective, self-congratulatory prayer. It is a God honor your name sort of prayer. And then I want you to see something very, very important that David tucks in here in verse 7. He throws in this phrase without cause. For with, and he says it twice as a doubling, a coupling in this poem. For without cause, they hid their net for me. And without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. This is how we come to understand that David is not just just trying to be vindictive. This is a very important point that David is making. And it's this. Sometimes we feel, and I'm going to throw it in air quotes, persecuted. When really we're just reaping the rewards for our own sin, our own sharpness, our own lack of grace, etc. There have been other psalms that we've already seen and psalms that we will see as we continue to go forward where David basically says, I know that it's because of my own sin. I know that it's because of my own wrongdoing. I know that it's because of my own attitude or whatever that my enemy is overcoming me right now. I have done what's wrong and that's why my enemy is victorious currently. Sometimes, Christian friend, hear me this morning. We feel horribly persecuted because somebody will say something wrong about us or somebody will do something mean to us or somebody will give us some sort of mistreatment, if you will, when in fact... We're just getting what we deserve because, you know, to use a, a word borrowed from my grandfather, we were jackwagons. We were just horrible people. We were just rude and mean spirited and harsh and cruel. And we were unnecessarily just abrupt and short and just vile. You know what? Christians who believe in the Lord, who walk with Jesus can occasionally from time to time. I've heard it been said just Actually act sinfully toward other people. I know it's shocking to hear. But occasionally, even when we're engaging people who are not righteous, we can behave in an unrighteous way. 
David is explaining that his desire for his enemies to be torn down is not because they responded to him in some sort of wickedness that he had done. And he responded with, you know, they were wicked, so he was wicked, so they were wicked. But, you know, at the end of it, the end justified the means. So it didn't matter what I did in the middle, as long as the end result was the right end result. That is not God's economy. God cares not only about where you get to, but how you got there. And he says here very plainly, God, I want you to bring justice against my enemies because everything they've done to me has been without cause. In other words, I've walked in my righteousness and yet my enemies have still acted this way. And so before we pray the kind of prayer that David prayed against his enemies in these first 10 verses, we need to ask the question, "Ooh, do I deserve what I'm getting right now? What has my behavior toward my enemies been like to this point? That's a hard question to ask sometimes. Because we don't often like the answer. And we have to go to a different psalm and find a different way to talk about this. And as it closes in this section, David longs for God to be the judge and the deliverer. He wants... God to judge his enemies, we see in verse 8. But he also wants God to deliver those who walk rightly with him in verses 9 and 10. My soul shall rejoice in the Lord, exult in his salvation. My bones will say, Lord, who's like you? Who delivers the afflicted? And this is a wonderful and beautiful thing. And so to show that David is actually walking righteously before his enemies, we see a very unusual thing happen here in the Psalms. Beginning of verse 11, running through verse 14, David speaks to when our enemies suffer. How should we respond when our enemy is suffering if we're going to reflect the righteousness of God? And this is very unique and very unusual because there are times when David responds differently. But here, to show that it is without cause, to show that he is justly and righteously walking with the Lord, to show that he's not receiving a just recompense for his own sinning in the world. Look at what David says. Malicious witnesses rise up and they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. So pause there. David is declaring, I have only been doing good by my enemies. And they're repaying me that good with evil. I've been righteous toward them. I've been just toward them. I've been compassionate toward them. I've not spoken falsehood against them. I have been engaging them with the mercy of God. And they respond to me with evil. And then notice what he says. He takes it a step further. But as for me, when they were sick, when my enemy was down, my clothing was sackcloth. My clothing was sackcloth. That's the picture of mourning. Usually people were sackcloth when they were mourning the loss of someone or some great cataclysmic event that was occurring or in preparation for repentance. And they would usually fast and they would usually mourn and they would usually weep and they would usually uh, cover their head with ash or dirt to display their lowly estate. But as for me, when my enemy was sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. They 
Here David is declaring the brokenness that he has, that his enemy is suffering. I went about as though it was my friend or my brother. I bowed bowed down with mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. Now, I have to ask this question this morning because it's only fair that you deal with it for a few minutes in the sanctuary this morning because I dealt with it all week. When you stop and reflect on those that you would consider enemies of righteousness that exist in your life, and, and many of us have those, you're trying to walk with the Lord and your effort to walk with the Lord is met with this combative tension from someone or a group of someones in your life. And then suddenly something happens and great suffering or sorrow or difficulty comes into their life. Do you respond with mourning and brokenness and sadness as for the pain in a brother's life? Or is there that little kid voice inside of you goes, <laughs> that just kind of gets a little giddy that they're going through it? David said, listen, that when they found a place of sorrow, God, my righteous bent toward them because of your grace is such that when sorrow came to them, my heart was broken for them. I did not want them to suffer. That carries us full circle back to the without cause phrase that David put out. David did not desire the breaking of his enemies. He desired their redemption. He left the breaking of his enemies to God's judgmental hand. And from his human perspective, he longed for his enemies to be made whole. And he did not delight in watching them be broken apart. And friends, that is a profoundly difficult place to live. And it's one of the reasons why David was able to say with all integrity just a couple of verses before, they have set all of this destruction before me without cause. Because all I have given to my enemy is good. And all they have done is met me with is evil. And I'll just be honest, I struggled with that all week while I was prepping for this. When I read these words that David had to say about how he felt when his enemies were afflicted and when they were downtrodden and when they were being broken down. And his response was, man, I should mourn for them. I should weep for them. I should long for their restoration. I should I should view it as it's happening to my own brother, to my own mother, to to one who's close to me. My heart echoed the cry of, yeah, that's not usually how I feel. And so maybe my enemies stand against me with cause more often than I'd like to admit. And so when our enemies suffer, as the New Testament says, we should heap coals of kindness upon their head. Judgment belongs to the Lord. 
vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I am the one who shall repay. And this is what David means by wanting the Lord to contend and fight for him. If I try to usher vengeance out on my enemies, it will fall far short of any vengeance that God can bring. And if I issue out vengeance on my enemies, it might be premature because God may be reconciling those enemies to himself. And that's difficult to patiently endure the suffering at the hand of an unrighteous one with a hope and longing that God's kindness might lead them to repentance. And so he closes this very challenging psalm in verses 15 through 28 with a declaration that the Lord is our defense He mentions that at his stumbling, his enemies rejoiced. They gathered together, they slandered him without ceasing. They were smiters against him. There was a a struggling and a suffering that was compounded when he would suffer, when he would fall, when he would stumble. It caused his enemies to delight. And this is um, a unique poetic device that David is is using here instead instead of parallelism it's contrast it's 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 saying listen this is how i was toward my enemies yet this is how my enemies were toward me and they're vastly different they are as far away from each other as they can be and dear christian friend that is the declaration of the scripture when we are in christ and we come into conflict with the world, we should not look like the world in that conflict. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from the longing for vengeance and revenge. That's the world's way. That's why David is now declaring, I want you to fight my battle for me. And David actually has a life example of this. And it's very well, we don't have the context, but it's very well, this could be the context of the psalm. This is how David treated King Saul. At every turn, King Saul was trying to kill him. And David had plenty of opportunities to return the favor. And yet he would not do it. And it wasn't because of weakness. Friend, let no one say David was weak. It took incredible strength of character in the Lord not to slit Saul's throat. And I tell you, no one in the kingdom would have held David guilty for doing this. And yet, here's the good that I've shown my enemy. And here's the wickedness that my enemy shows me. We are not the same Lord. One of us is walking with you and the other is not. You vindicate your servant, O God. So what should I do? And when I find myself being confronted by an enemy like David's talking about, And I'm being pummeled on every side consistently and continually because of the things that that I believe about the Lord and that I trust about the Lord and the walk that I have with the Lord. And this this 
genuine, real, without cause, sorrow and persecution comes on me. What should I do? Here. Beginning of verse 17, the thing that I should do is call out to the Lord. Notice what David says in verse 17. Lord, how long will you look on? Friend, if you have never been there in your prayer life, may God continue to bless you with the compassion he has to this point. But there have been times in my life and I know times in many of your lives where things have been just so overwhelming circumstances, situations, the oppression of people, a combination of any of these things where you just cry out to heaven and you go, God, how long are you going to let this keep happening? There's a little angst in David's voice here. And people say you shouldn't pray like that. Absolutely, you should pray like that. All of the greatest saints in the Bible prayed like that. Jesus prayed like that. He fell down and began bleeding drops of blood in the garden and said, Is there another way? You're in really good company when you pray like this. And you know what? Our God's a big God. A strong God. A mighty God. He can handle the angst of His people. The name Israel itself, when Jacob was renamed, means the one who strives and wrestles with God. That's what it means. I think in our Christian lives, we could all do for a little bit more striving from time to time. Grabbing a hold of God and not letting go. And asking God the hard questions, because you know what? He's got the best answers to the hard questions. And I'm sure David was probably up to it. I mean, just, man, up to here with it. Just, come on, God. How long are you going to keep letting stuff like this happen? I thought you were a God of justice. I thought you were a God of righteousness. And the wicked keep prevailing in this world. Wow. You know, if you've not been there, please wake up, look around. We live in a really broken world. Filled with wretchedness. And a lot of times that wretchedness turns its attention to the things of God intentionally. And David said, how long, God? How long will you look on? The implication is it's not stated here, but the implication is how long will you look on and seemingly not do anything? Say, wow, this seems blasphemous. You know what? This is called honesty. And God can handle our honesty. Listen, he already knows your thoughts. You might as well just say them to him. And so David calls out to the Lord. And what does he call out for? Let's walk through the things that David prays for. Maybe it'll help guide our prayers. First, he calls out for salvation. Notice here in verse 17, right after he says that. The very next thing he says is rescue my soul from their ravages. Save me. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Save me. There is a cry for salvation, friend. You do not call out on God to save you one time. 
Your life's cry the moment that you meet Jesus in a saving way is a continuous cry for the salvation of the Lord. Until the day that glory comes and we are conformed to the image of Christ fully in the remade heaven and earth, our cry will be a cry of deliverance. We even have a scene in the revelation of the souls that are under the throne and the resurrection has not happened yet and the new glory has not come yet and the heaven and earth have not been made yet and they still, seeing Jesus in their spiritual form, say, how much longer? They're even praying it still in glory. Until the day that glory comes fully and completely, that is the cry of God's people. Save me. Deliver me. And friends, I think one of the great problems with modern evangelical Christianity is that we have this mindset of I walked down an aisle, I prayed a little prayer, I filled in a card, and I don't ever have to ask God to deliver me from anything ever again. And that is so not true. Friends, the old Puritan said, preach the gospel to yourself every day and then go and preach it to others. Share the gospel as a dead man dying and trying to give life to other dying dead men. Salvation is the first cry. Second. There's a giving of praise. Friends, those go so hand in hand in the scripture. I, I, I just it cannot be overemphasized. When you cry out for salvation and God saves you, the only right response is praise. I don't usually call for response. Maybe you're asleep. The only right response is praise. There's no other right way to respond to a God who's just saved you from your sin, from destruction, from hell, from God's wrath, from justice, from the hands of your enemies, from your circumstances, from your sorrow, from your internal warfare. There is no greater response to the God of heaven than to praise his name when he has delivered you. And then and only then. Does David call for justice? He wants God to save him. He wants to praise God for saving him. And then and only then does he want God to exercise justice. Friends, I think what happens a lot of times is we confuse our salvation with God's justice. God, you know how you could save me? By executing justice on my enemies. Mm. That's not how God saves you. God delivers you from the fact that you should also be receiving his justice. Never, ever forget when you're praying about those who've stood against you in unrighteousness because of your righteous walk with the Lord. That any justice that befalls them should have also fallen on you and on me. And it is the mere merciful pleasure of God 
that I'm being delivered not just from the hand of my enemy, but also from the hand of God himself. And then finally, he calls for God to judge and test not his enemy's heart, but his own heart. As you walk through and you see these last verses, 22 through down toward the end of the chapter. There is a call for God to judge the hearts of his people. And friends, we often leave that out. You know, the enemy is speaking against the hearts of God's people there in verse 25. And David is saying, let it not be true. Again, this is back full circle to being without cause. When I call out to the Lord, when I pray to him, I pray for salvation. I pray a praise to his name. I call for justice to be had and I call God to continue to judge my heart. Because, friend, I may walk rightly with the Lord today and I may treat my enemy well today. And I may go to sleep and I may wake up tomorrow and I may train wreck the whole thing. Because I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. I have to remind myself to love my enemy every day. I have to remind myself to do well and do good by those who mistreat me every day. And what's the conclusion of the matter? In verses 27 and 28, we see that the conclusion of the matter is worship. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. Let them continually say the Lord be magnified, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. My tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Friends, when you come to realize that the Lord is your great defense in Christ Jesus through the gospel by means of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And that he is fighting your battle for you. That you don't have to become angry. That you don't have to respond in kind. That you don't have to embrace the old adage, I don't get mad, I get even. When you realize that that's not how you have to live, but instead that it is actually, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, a blessing. Blessed is the man. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when people insult you and revile you and speak all manner of evil against you. For my name's sake, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. When you come to the realization that living life from that perspective is a demonstration of God's deliverance of you because you are no longer a slave to the sin of anger and retribution, but rather you now have being manifest in you a demonstration of God's compassion and mercy that should lead us to worship. Thank you, God, that you are making me to be like Christ. And friend, your circumstance may not change at all. But your realization of how you engage your circumstance will be worlds apart from where it was. And rather than driving you toward pettiness, driving you toward anxiety and anger, driving you toward all manner of guilt and sorrow and frustration, and angst over things you cannot control. Instead, it drives you to pray for those 
who hate you and to do good to those who despise you and to give room for the Lord to make much of himself in their lives. And what do we find when we find that? Freedom. We find freedom. And when we find freedom, there we should also find worship. Thank you, God, that you have set me free. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging words like this one. Father, let each of us examine ourselves, test our hearts, evaluate our lives. Let us see if we are truly having enemies stand against us without cause. Are we desiring the best for the other? Are we heaping coals of kindness on those who come against us? Are we understanding that we are blessed when we're making so much of the name of Christ that others revile us for it? And do we then in kind respond with more mercy and more compassion? Or do we respond in our own strength? Father, forgive us when we seek vengeance ourselves against our enemies. When we seek to do the work that only you can do. When we don't leave room for your grace to grow and to be manifest in their lives. And we choke out the visible picture of the gospel through our own waywardness. Father, forgive us. And instead, Father, give to us what you have promised you would give. Hearts that are so full of Christ that even when our enemies suffer, we mourn for them as at the loss of a brother. And we desire for them to be reconciled and redeemed for the one who is far off to be brought near, just as you have done with us. Father, make us gospel centered people in this way. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.